Bright lights, giant bugs, and mass extinction. It's the Planet Earth Podcast. I'm Richard Hollingham, and here's this week's mystery object. They grow very quickly, they're very, very reproductively successful. They colonise environments very quickly. All will be revealed in a few minutes. I'm at the University Museum of Zoology at Cambridge in the insect room, surrounded by the insect collection. This is really behind the scenes at the museum. And to give you a sense of what I'm surrounded by, really it's floor to ceiling with stacks of drawers and wooden cabinets and cases of preserved insects. And this this peculiar smell almost of of mothballs here. And I don't think that's coming from uh, William Foster, who's a curator of insects. William, what is that smell? It is indeed mothballs. I mean, naphthalene, which we aren't allowed to use anymore, but which was used historically to stop moths, essentially, and other insects eating the insects, the uh, dead uh, insects. Give, give me a sense, then, of the, the extent of, of the collection. There are drawers, stacks of drawers around. Yeah, there are something like three-quarters of a million sp- uh, specimens of about 45,000 species of insects here. Of course, they're quite small, so you can pack a lot in. Although it is quite a large room. Mostly, they're on pins. Insects unlike most animals, are really easy to preserve. As it were, you stick a pin through them, and because the, the information's on the cuticle, the outside, they stay in reasonably good condition if you look after them. Now, let's open one of the cabinets up. This says... I can't even read what it well, says it's, in there. It's, it's the Crotch Coccinellidae. So it's a collection of ladybirds made by a man called um, Crotch, George Robert Crotch, in the mid-19th century. They're important because this is the most important collection of ladybirds probably in existence, because of the time they were collected so long ago, and because they have a lot of what we call type specimens. I'll just open a drawer to show Richard it. And all the ones that have blue labels on are type specimens. That is, when the person who described that species of ladybird made his original description, he said, and the type specimen will be given whatever it will be here, and will be kept in the Museum of Zoology. So this is like a reference, is it, for, yes, for a particular yeah. species? Every species in the world, of every animal and indeed every plant, has somewhere a type specimen in a museum. So these are the most important things that any museum can have and have the responsibility of taking care of. Well, just looking in this, this tray, there's one tray in a cabinet that you've pulled out here, and what, how many are in here? 100, 100 or so tiny little ladybirds and... I mean, they're really small as well. well that's quite large. <laughs> I mean, I some of them are small, is, yes. yeah. And the one that I said, they're about at least... They almost look like jewels, don't they? The yeah, way they're, yeah. where they're presented in these, in these white boxes. Yeah, they're nice. And they're important. They're not just pretty and interesting and scientifically sort of amusing or whatever. They are important in terms of biological control because these are some of the main predators of other insects. And so people want to maybe try and release a, a bug to control another bug somewhere, they need to get the species name right. And to do that, you do need collections like this where they've kept them properly named and properly curated. We'll be talking about current research on insects a little later in, in the podcast, but that's the point, isn't it, that, that these are still relevant. This tray may be 100 years old, but it's still relevant, and the insects around us are still relevant. They're important for... At least three reasons. One, as I've just said, that they're, they're a kind of archive for the names of the species. Secondly, the, each specimen has a label. And on that label it says when it was collected, where it was collected, who collected it. And that's an archive of really important information about past distributions of insects, 
We now know how that might have changed. If we want to know that global warming has affected the distribution of an insect, we can only know if we know where they used to be, and the museum collections can help tell us that. Another use is if you want to identify an insect, maybe you're a student here just starting out, you're not quite sure you've got the right species, you can go to the drawer and there'll be something there which will be mostly accurate. I mean, they do make mistakes on these guys, but on the whole, it will be accurate. And so you can check the name of the species you think you've got. And there are also in collections here of historical importance. For example, we have a, an amazing collection of Darwin's beetles he made as an undergraduate when he was at Cambridge. And you could argue those are the most important insects ever collected by anybody because that's what turned him on to biology and therefore to you know, thinking about evolution and the origin of species and so on. I think you have the best job title of anyone I've ever interviewed. I think, well, OK, yes. <laughs> curator of insects. Fantastic. Yeah, that's cool. I'm very pleased to be the curator of insects. William Foster, thank you very much. Well, coral reefs are among the most beautiful places in the world, rich in biodiversity. They're also vital for the economies that depend on them for fishing, tourism or protection from storms. As the climate changes, it's important to understand how these ecosystems are likely to be affected. Well, I went to meet a team of scientists studying the effects of climate change on coral. Sadly, this wasn't in a tropical paradise, but the basement of a 1960s tower block at the University of Essex. I joined Dave Smith and Dave Suggett by an aquarium. What we stocked this tank with stems really from our research. It's several different types of coral that exhibit a range of different life histories. So, for example, we have some, like these branching here, they grow very quickly, they're very, very reproductively successful. They colonise environments very quickly. The flip side is they suffer from stress in the environment very quickly. When you first look in this tank and, and see these corals, which are arranged really on a, a shelf yeah. across the tank, it's, it's lovely, clear water, they just look inert. They don't look... They didn't look alive, really. <laughs> they look at something you might have got at a, a seaside gift shop mm. or something. But actually, it's when you look close, you can see there is almost movement. There is movement on the, the top of them. Well, corals are a community. It's not, it's not a single organism, if you like. And uh, they have their symbiotic algae, which do all the work during the day when the lights are out. The flip side is during the night, the little tentacles come out. And the actual animal that provides the housing for the, the little symbiotic algae, they then start feeding and they do all the work. So because we've got the lights switched on at the moment, the animals are, if you like, tucked up in bed. The, uh, the plants are out feeding. Now, Dave Smith, you're staring into this tank with us as well. Mm. They're very pretty, but what's their importance? What's the importance of coral? You can look at it from a biological perspective and a human perspective. In terms of biology generally, then they are probably the most biodiverse ecosystem, particularly marine ecosystem on the planet. So they harbour so many more species per unit area, for example, than any other system. In terms of the human angle, then it's estimated that they support the livelihoods of around... 500 million people will round. 500 million? 500 million people, yeah. So when we're talking about sustaining livelihoods, what we're really talking about is the fish that reef coral reefs support. So they provide food, they provide other sources of economics. They're important for human communities generally because the coral themselves act as a brick wall, if you like, and prevent storms and surges impacting coastal communities. Now, Dave Sugger, you're looking at the impacts of climate change right. on coral. And what impacts are we talking about? What things are changing that will have an effect on coral? Well, I think certainly in terms of um, public perception of what's changing, 
most currently everyone's aware of ocean acidification and perhaps people are reasonably aware of coral bleaching and that's driven as a result of warmer waters. Perhaps what's less clear to many people is that the light environment of corals is, is perhaps more rapidly changing than ocean acidification. And, what, and so it's getting, what, what, lighter, darker? Well, it, depending on where you are, it could be both. I mean, there's, there's several so why ways... why is that? Why is that? Well, there's several ways of looking at this. The, the first is that with sea level rise, for example, corals arguably can't grow as fast as the sea level is changing. So they're further down? Absolutely. So, so they're less able to reach the light. And when this happens, their growth rate's slow. So the argument here is whether they can keep up or catch up. The second component is um, with coastal communities changing, with land use change. And this is the big worry for us where we work in Indonesia, for example, where you have a lot more river runoff as a result of deforestation. The waters get cloudier. There's more nutrients. And again, less light for the corals to grow. Ultimately, certainly from the work we've done on climate change, this is going to select for more persistent coral species. So it will change the appearance of reefs longer term. So you've got the ocean acidification, which is the, the oceans becoming more, more acid. That's right. You've got sea level changes, yeah. so the coral either ends up further or closer t- to the surface. Mm-hmm. And then you've got increased nutrients as well. So there's quite a lot going on here. It, it's an immense barrage, and this is really where our approach for experimentation has perhaps been quite unique, in that until now everyone experimenting with ocean acidification has just been interested on the effects of CO2. Now that's really, really important, of course, for us to understand how organisms respond to that particular variable. But of course, Climate change isn't about just one component changing at a time. Everything's happening at once, and what we're examining is how these interactive effects are going to change coral growth rates. Well, let's move away from this tank to the other side of the laboratory. We head over here, and there's some very bright lights over in the distance on one of the, uh, the benches. Let's have a look at this. So here we are in Essex winter being blinded by these, <laughs> these lights on the bench, and you've got tubes of lights shining at... Five beakers with sealed tops and tubes coming out, and inside each one, some very pretty corals. What are you doing to these? What we're doing is a, is a provisional experiment to examine how different light intensities alter coral growth rates. Now, coral growth rates, how fast corals grow, is one of the key unknown variables. Despite generations of research on corals and coral reefs, we still don't have a good understanding of not only how fast they grow, but how the environment regulates their growth. So in order to put our climate change experiments into context, we have to understand how the environment actually regulates their growth in the first place. There's one more experiment on the bench here, and I need to bring in someone else. This is uh, Tracy Lawson, who've got an even bigger beaker on the bench here. Now, this is quite strange. You've got on the bottom a a spinning disc to, I suppose, keep the the water moving. Halfway up, you've got a coral suspended on a shelf. got various things sticking in the top, and this (laughs) strange... uh, collection of tubes inside the beaker as well what is this okay so this strange collection of tubes that's inside here is actually our prototype system that we just just designed and developed here that will actually measure the pco2 within the seawater so you're actually measuring the carbon dioxide in here and you you can measure the the amount of acidity as well the, the ph yes we're measuring two variables here we're measuring ph And we're also measuring the PCO2, which gives us full control and full measurements of the actual carbon chemistry as it's taken place. Now, Dave Suggett, you want to scale this up now, don't you? That's the next stage. I mean, at the moment, our capacity for having our experiments on corals is limited twofold. First of all, when we're in the field, and that, of course, is not only costly in terms of getting in and out of the field, but in terms of time. 
but also in terms of our capacity to run experiments, we just don't have the space to grow the corals we need here at Essex. So the next phase of this is to expand our current husbandry facility into a brand new system, state-of-the-art, you know, as an academic resource, to not only grow corals but to have fully controlled experimental tank facilities also. Uh, And Dave Smith, you're overseeing this research. What is it about corals that, that gets you so excited, apart from the fact that they're terribly pretty? Well, they are, but they also grow in very nice places as well, which is also quite exciting. I can see the attraction <laughs> of society. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. just got to go to the Seychelles. Yeah, so. it's a difficult job. But I think what really sort of switches us on is that um, most of the field locations we go to, it's only when you go there and you live with the local communities that you realise how important this resource is to sort of people on the ground, if you like. Many of the places we go to, particularly in Indonesia and in the Seychelles, there's up to 100,000 people who depend on local reefs. Populations are expanding, friends, families are expanding, and the food that they can get from the system is decreasing. So I think it's a real sort of, it's a real good sense of knowing that what you're doing, the research questions you're asking, are really going to have a society benefit, as well as, of course, furthering our knowledge of biological systems. Dave Smith and Dave Suggett at the University of Essex. They'll soon be heading off to do some field work in Indonesia and we've asked them to take a video camera to film the reefs they work on and record their experiences. We're planning to feature that material on the Planet Earth Online website in the coming months. Which brings us seamlessly to some of the stories you'll find on the site at the moment. Here's Tamara Jones and a welcome return of a dinosaur story. Well this is a great one. This is about the extinction of the dinosaurs which was caused by a 15-kilometre-wide asteroid smashing into the Earth 65 million years ago, and not by huge volcanoes. This is what a panel of experts has concluded after sifting through 30 years' worth of data on the subject. And they found chemical elements in rocks from the time of the impact all around the Earth that could only have come from an asteroid. And what's more, there are lots of these chemicals around the impact site at Chicxulub in Mexico. But the further away you go from the impact site, the more sparse those elements become. Some scientists have argued that massive volcanoes in India were behind the mass extinction, but the experts found no evidence for any change in the numbers of species whilst those volcanoes were erupting. Instead, they found a massive drop in numbers of species immediately after the asteroid struck. On to sea turtles now. University of Exeter scientists have found that global warming may actually lead to more female than male turtles. And the reason for this is because the sex of marine turtles depends on the temperature their eggs are incubated at. And so warm temperature leads to female turtles, whilst uh, cooler temperatures like you'd find in white reflective sand tend to lead to male turtles. But the problem for turtles is that because they always go back to the same site to nest year after year, they're much more vulnerable to local changes in temperature. But the researchers don't really know exactly how female turtles will react to global warming. They may just lay their eggs earlier to avoid the higher temperatures, or they may may actually lay their eggs deeper in the sand where it's cooler. They just don't know. And sewage. Ecologists from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology have discovered that phosphate pollution in English rivers most probably comes from sewage rather than agricultural fertilisers. Phosphate causes over-fertilisation or eutrophication of rivers. And this is a problem because it leads to excessive amounts of algae. Too much algae chokes rivers because it uses up sunlight and oxygen which other river species need to grow. But until now, scientists weren't really sure of the exact source of these phosphates. 
But in the new research, they linked phosphates with the chemical boron, which is found in household washing powders. They saw that as levels of boron went up, so did phosphate levels, which really suggests that household waste is most probably to blame. Thanks, Tamara. Let's get back to those insects now. And I'm in the insect room at the University Museum of Zoology in Cambridge with these beautiful wooden cabinets full of preserved insects. But we mentioned earlier about using these for current and, and future research. And one of those researchers is Tim Cockrell, who's about to go off to Borneo to look at two particular insects. That's right. I mean, these collections are fantastically important historically, but they're also being used for current research as well, and we're adding to the collections constantly. So I'm looking at the insects in rainforest fragments next to oil palm plantations, and of course there's a huge problem with oil palm at the moment, and not many consumers in the West realise that most of the products that we consume do contain palm oil. So I think if you walk into a supermarket, it's probably more difficult to find a product that doesn't have palm oil in it than one that does. It's in chocolates, it's in washing powder, it's in ready meals, absolutely everything. And it's hugely controversial isn't it, that we're losing rainforests to end up with palm plantations, which you could argue is is green energy or, or, or oil is, is green, but it's, if you lost the rainforest, then it's not. Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of flip side of the argument. It's a fantastically useful crop and a fantastically useful product, but the flip side is that the best place to grow palm oil is in the place where rainforest grows best, in the humid tropics. So I'm asking the question that if we leave fragments of rainforest rather than chopping it all down for palm oil production... Well, do these fragments have any beneficial effects on the plantation itself? So I'm trying to think of reasons to conserve fragments of forest rather than just chopping it all down so we don't lose absolutely everything. And and when you say fragments, it's almost, is it like a patchwork at the moment in these areas where the palm plantations are? So you have these patches of of rainforest and then a a field of of palms. Yeah, well, I mean, the the research shows that that's actually one of the best ways to conserve the diversity of species within a really large landscape, to kind of make a mosaic of interconnected landscapes. So one of the theories is around rivers that kind of weave their way through the plantation, well, we can leave a few uh, 10 or 20 metres of forest at either side. So I'm specifically looking at patches, kind of round patches of forest in the plantation, that we could leave patches next to plantation or patches within plantation to see if they can have a beneficial effect. Now you're doing this by studying insects, but two insects in particular. Yeah, I look at two groups of insects, the parasitic wasps and the ants. Now they're both fascinating groups of insects. The parasitic wasps, they're not like the kind of black and yellow wasps that we know from annoying us at picnics and that kind of thing. Most of them are absolutely tiny, some of them are microscopic and they're incredibly beautiful insects actually. When you look at them under the microscope, they're very shiny. It looks like a kind of foil-wrapped box of chocolates when you look at one of my samples. So I look at these insects, they're really important because they can provide pest control to the plantations. So in their parasitic nature, the adults of these wasps lay their eggs inside the pests of the plantations and then the the babies of these wasps live inside the pests and then all of a sudden the pest will start feeling a bit queasy and then it'll stop what it's doing and then it'll pop open and lots of new adult wasps will fly out. So it's like Alien! Exactly, it's exactly like the Alien films. So they're really kind of gruesome but fascinating group of insects. And then there's the the ants as well? That's right, and ants are a fantastically important group and they're in fact one of the biggest groups of insects and you find them all over the world. They're really important in the tropics and they're also important for pest control. The Chinese, for example, the ancient Chinese used these ants thousands of years ago in their plantations to rid them of pests. So I'm asking the question whether the ants can be important in pest control as well. Now, you're going to be taking a recorder with you, aren't you? So you're going to send back audio diaries for us. Exactly, yeah. I'll be battling through the blood-sucking leeches and the heat and humidity of the rainforest and keeping you up to date in what's going on in the field. 
Well, good luck, Tim. Thank you very much. The Planet Earth podcast is produced by the Natural Environment Research Council. You can follow us on Facebook or tweet us on Twitter. I'm Richard Hollingham from the University Museum of Zoology, Cambridge. Thanks for listening.